Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 416 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Dave Rubin. He's the creator and host of the popular talk show The Rubin Report, which often features guests who are critical of the mainstream media. He also performs stand-up comedy in cities across the United States. And together with Jordan Peterson, he traveled the world to help promote Peterson's book, 12 Rules for Life. And we'll be speaking with him today about his new book, Don't Burn This Book, Thinking for Yourself in an Age of Unreason. And now here's our interview with Dave Rubin. All right, so we're here with Dave Rubin. Welcome to the show. It's good to be with you. Okay, so based on my research, I have a list here of some of your favorite science fiction. So we've got Star Wars, Contact, Battlestar Galactica, The Matrix, Back to the Future, Total Recall, Interstellar, Minority Report, and A Scanner Darkly. So is that a pretty good list of some of your favorite stuff? It's funny, as, a, as you're telling me the list, I'm going, those are all pretty solid movies. Yeah, <laughs> that's a lot of it right there. You can see I have a definite, like, Philip K. Dick dystopian part of me, you know, the, the Star Wars part is sort of the childhood, mystical, magical part. And uh, and then I like, you know, the combination of those. I would say, you know, Minority Report is like sort of mystical, whoa, what could happen with the future? And then and then it really goes dystopian. But I, I love sci-fi movies. I love time travel movies. I love, um, you know, anything that just makes us think about what tomorrow will be like. Because I think anyone, if you're going to do what I do for a living, which is mostly politics, I mean, why do you care about this stuff? You care about it because you're trying to shape a better tomorrow. And basically every good sci-fi movie uh, is about a tomorrow that something usually goes pretty awry. It's funny you say that. You know, in college, I majored in political science. And I did that explicitly because I loved political science fiction like um, mm -hmm. Robert Heinlein's Starship Troopers. And I wanted to be able to write stuff like that someday. Was well, Starship Troopers was uh, – uh, that's Paul Verhoeven, I think, was the director who also did Total Recall. And Total Recall probably – is my favorite all time. The original Schwarzenegger one uh, is probably my all time favorite sci fi movie. Right. Robert Heinlein wrote the novel and the yeah, Verhoeven yeah. movies, though. Yeah. Um, but so, did, do you think that your interest in science fiction, like, how did that kind of dovetail with your interest in politics? Um, you know, I remember seeing, so I was born in 76. I remember seeing Star Wars for the first time when I was probably like four or five years old, and I was just blown away. Like, just, I, I couldn't believe that anything this amazing could exist, you know, between the robot, you know, the droids, the robots, the, the force, the spaceships, all of this stuff, Darth Vader, like it just, it just captured my imagination, which is what good sci-fi does. You know, one of the things that I've been talking about over the last couple of years related to politics is that the Star Wars prequels are actually a really, really great political story about the accumulation of power. Because what does Palpatine do, you know, first by becoming senator and then becoming chancellor and then becoming, you know, supreme leader and in effect, you know, becoming the emperor. I mean, he starts a war and plays both sides against each other until he has enough power. And then what does he do? He shuts down one of the, one of the sides. That's what Revenge of the Sith is all about. Um, and the story of Darth Vader, you know, becoming Darth Vader or Anakin Skywalker becoming Darth Vader in the midst of that, that's actually a secondary story to what really was an incredible sort of opera about power. So, you know, I know the, the prequels are easy to make fun of and we can talk about Jar Jar Binks and some bad acting and, you know, some stiff love scenes and all that kind of stuff. But the, the, the 
underlying story is pretty spectacular, you know, and, and that's why the prequels, by the way, are so memeable. There's so many things in there. I am the Senate. Uh, I love democracy. Uh, there's so many lines in there from Palpatine specifically, um, but even from Padme, you know, this is how uh, liberty dies with thunderous applause. There's just great, great, rich stuff in there. And that, to me, if you combine a good political story with some droids and some some magic and mystery, oh, I'm, I'm hooked. Well, yeah, and we're definitely going to have a lot more to say about Star Wars as we go. But I also wanted to ask you, do you ever, um, have you ever been to Comic-Con or any science fiction conventions or things like that? You know, believe it or not, I have never been to Comic-Con. I've been asked to go a couple times and just schedules haven't quite lined up. So I've never been to Comic-Con. I did get an early advance uh, trip to the Star Wars land here at Anaheim at Disney, um, which was actually quite over, uh, underwhelming, but we can we can hold more Star <laughs> Wars for just a bit if you want. Yeah. Like most Star Wars things in the last couple of years, it was quite underwhelming. Mm. Uh, well, so tell us the story about how you watched Contact in the theater. Contact changed my life. So for anyone listening that doesn't know the movie Contact, it was the only fiction that Carl Sagan ever wrote. Carl Sagan, who of course wrote Cosmos and was a really a science communicator in a way that we think of Neil deGrasse Tyson now. He was also a professor at Cornell University, as was his wife, Andrean. And I was going, it was 1997, it was the summer, and we were going to see Air Force One, which I'm sure everybody's seen with Harrison Ford. And a bunch of buddies of mine, we ate pot brownies and we walk into the movie theater and we're like bugging out. Like, you know, when you're just like seriously stupid high, you're laughing, you can't speak. Like we could barely buy tickets because we were just crumbling on the floor laughing. I mean, we were really like out of our minds. And we get to the to the ticket counter. This is before Fandango and everything. You had to actually go to the place to buy the ticket. And we say, you know, whatever it was, five for uh, Air Force One. And they said it was sold out. And the only other thing that was about to start was this movie Contact. None of us had heard of it. And we're all stoned out of our minds. And we sat down in that theater. And if you remember that opening panorama scene in Contact, which is the incredible expanse of the universe, uh, where it starts with a shot of the Earth. And then they just take you further and further out into the galaxy, into the universe, into the nebula, into the, the gases. And then it ends up in Ellie Arroway's eye as a child. That's the character that Jodie Foster played. I was just blown away. I just, it, man, it got me. It got me. However a movie can get you, when, it, when a good movie, a good story captures you, it just got me. And then I, I love the movie and the movie actually, I just watched it a few, uh, a few weeks ago with the Ruben Report community. And the movie really, if anything, it's even better now than it was, uh, 20 years ago because it is related to so many of the things going on right now about science and religion and belief and government and just so much of what we what we all talk about right now and what we all focus on right now. So after that movie, I ended up reading a whole bunch of Carl Sagan's books. It really opened me up to the world of of science and uh, and discovery and exploration. And and what I love about it is, you know, the 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 beauty of Contact is that there were no lightsabers, there were no um, you know magical creatures or anything like that. It's a it's a science based movie in the way that you know, Interstellar is like a science-based movie. So, you know, as opposed to a great sci-fi movie like Aliens, well, I'm not saying that aliens don't exist and we, we won't get to that that future one day too, but something that felt like it was purely based in science for science's sake. And that's why it felt so real and cool and raw. 
One of the pieces of art that you had in the background on your set for a long time was it's like the NASA Grand Tour yeah. painting with all the rocket ships, sort of retro rocket ships. So I was just wondering if there's any story behind how you came to acquire that. Well, it's sort of everything that I've talked about here. My set designer just knows the type of stuff that I like, and we wanted something kind of colorful, and she was trying to find something kind of futury and funky and a little a little offbeat. And, you know, it's funny because I've now got some really spectacular original pieces on my set, but the amount of emails that we get, what is that? Where can I get it? Mm -hmm. um, we actually, when, when my book came out, we printed a couple – oh, no, we bought a couple copies of that that I signed and sent to people because people just absolutely – you know, the colors are really cool. The planes look cool. It's pretty awesome. You also have this one uh, of the Millennium Falcon jumping to hyperspace. Is there a story? Oh, yeah. Well, that one, so that's an original, um, by Kaylin Rose Janet. It's kaylinrosejanet.com, uh, C-A-Y-L-I-N. Uh, that's an original five foot by eight foot painting that she did in our house. And for those that haven't seen it, it is, it's the, the view from the Millennium Falcon going into hyperspace. Um, and you know, it, we, it's a little minimalistic, so you're not seeing much of the Millennium Falcon really, but you're just seeing that, that beautiful, the beginning of that, that burst of light, that burst of color and that painting, uh, she's done a bunch of originals for us. She's an incredible artist. Uh, but first off the size five foot by eight, um, but to do the meticulous drawing of those lines, that thing was, uh, it was not a labor of love. That was a real hard slog to get through. But, you know, I have, I have obviously a lot of, uh, you know, fairly famous and, and influential people coming through my house and pretty much every single person stops and comments uh, about that painting. So having loved Star Wars and the science fiction your whole life, did you ever have people push back against that or make fun of you or, um, you know, tell you you should be reading something else other than science um, fiction? <laughs> you know, it's interesting because... Y you know, I was definitely a nerd as a kid, like, and I think I'm still a nerd in, in a certain regard. You know, there, the word nerd has sort of shifted and morphed from like, you know, in the 80s, it was like revenge of the nerds, that nerds were just like obsessed with like math and like computers when we didn't even know what computers were and love science fiction and stuff like that. And I think I was like a different kind of a nerd in that, like, I loved all of those movies. Again, like even Total Recall which I mentioned before, I think that came out in maybe 88, 89. I'm like 12 years old. I was obsessed with that thing. Uh, all the Star Wars movies, um, all, all of the things that, that you mentioned at the top. Um, I was really into video games. Um, you know, most of my, my days were filled in the basement playing Nintendo and Sega Genesis and all that kind of stuff. So I was really immersed in that culture, but I wasn't like a math nerd in that sort of traditional sense. I'm actually not that great at math. Math is one of my deficiencies. I'm much better. I was always better in like the languages than I was in math. Um, so nerd culture, I really like because it, it feels very authentic to me. You know, pretty much every Halloween, if it's Halloween, I'm going as a Star Wars character. I don't remember <laughs> the last Halloween that I did not as a, I was Kylo Ren this year. I was, uh, Obi-Wan last year. I think I was Anakin before that. So, you know, these things, it's, it's why these things, it's, it's sort of why these things like leech into our system and that, you know, good stories can tell you a much deeper truth. I think one of the things that has sort of, screwed up Star Wars is that, you know, the originals, there was a truth there about finding your path and that sometimes you have to go through your, your father in this case to find it. And then the prequels had what I referred to earlier as this really great political story. And I think what Star Wars ran up against in the, in these last three, although I liked Force Awakens until the other two came out. And then the, I think that the middle one, Last Jedi was so bad that it just mangled it 
to the point where um, Rise of Skywalker was actually fine, but it was just doing damage control the entire movie. Um, but I think the reason that they, they're sort of bad is because as they handed them over to Disney and they just became sort of giant money makers, which is not what the originals were about, right? I mean, there's all those tons of stories about George Lucas going over budget and they didn't think it was going to happen and they were inventing all of these special effects and all this stuff. I think they handed something over to Disney and then it just became, all right, how do we make money? How do we blow things up? Like, you know, there's the, the story. Maybe you know a little bit about, about it more than I do, but that they didn't even write the three stories out. So each director sort of had their own crack at it. So, you know, JJ writes something for Force Awakens. Ryan Johnson basically completely aborted it in Last Jedi. And then they bring JJ back and he has to just fix the whole thing. And that's why Last Jedi, even though it was fine, it felt like a race. Like there's never a moment to breathe in it because the whole time he's just trying to patch the ship before it sinks. And, and I mention all this because I think it's, we need new stories. We desperately need new stories. So anytime I, you know, see some cool sci-fi thing come across Netflix or where, wherever, I'm, I'm always super excited. I watched a movie called Aniaria. Have you heard about this one? I think oh, yeah, it was I saw on, that, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's somewhat low budget and it's from Sweden. Um, but a really, really super interesting story about, you know, it's dystopian in that it's a, you know, a cruise ship in space that basically breaks down and they're going to be in space lost forever. Um, and, you know, they, they take it over decades of what happens as people sort of die and turn to religion and mysticism and all sorts of things. And I just thought it was super interesting. So it's not, for me, it's not about big budgets necessarily. It's like, give me something that's new and original and makes me think. And that, that's what I love. Right. And I promise we're going to get to Star Wars. But before that, I did want to bring up your new. Book, All right. I'll stop with the Star Wars stuff, <laughs> which I which I read. And I um I guess I should say, you know, I've been watching you since, um on you know, your video since probably 2013. I was a subscriber to the Young Turks for a couple of years. And uh, I'll get to that. But so um the book is dedicated to Ben Affleck. And I was wondering if you could just talk for people who don't know any of this stuff. Why is the book sure, dedicated so, to Ben Affleck? Yeah. I don't know Ben Affleck. I've never met Ben Affleck. I don't think he was a particularly good Batman. I think he probably agrees with that, <laughs> as do most of the fans. Uh, but I dedicated the book to Ben Affleck because there's a story that I tell in the book, um, which happened, it took place in, I believe, the fall of 2014. And this was when Sam Harris, who's a neuroscientist and mostly known for mindful meditation now, uh, he was on real time with Bill Maher and Affleck, was on as well. And Affleck was on the side of the table where the three guests are. That's where they're doing panel and they're sort of just talking about current events and things like that. And Sam came on to discuss his book, which I have actually right in front of me here. It's called Waking Up, A Guide to Spirituality Without Religion. So naturally, uh, Bill Maher talks about religion and atheism a lot. And they started talking about the necessity to be able to separate ideas from people, meaning you should be able to criticize any set of ideas and you don't want to be bigoted towards people. This is something we all know. You could criticize the set of ideas that is the Democratic Party platform. That doesn't mean you hate all Democrats. If you were to criticize the ideas of the Old Testament, nobody would say you hate all Jews and, and likewise for the New Testament and Christians. And in this case, they started talking about the Quran and that you should be able to criticize the ideas in the Quran. But of course, you don't want to be bigoted towards all Muslim people. We all know this is a very basic idea actually but what happened was Affleck heard that and he got very red in the face and very angry and he was pounding his hands on the table and his voice was trembling and there were three words that were heard around the world he called Bill Maher and Sam Harris gross and racist even though they had said nothing gross and racist and had gone out of their way to explain what they were talking about quite clearly and what I saw happen after that 
was was truly remarkable because suddenly the left liberal media was attacking Bill Maher for being racist. So I didn't even know who Sam Harris was at the time, but Bill had been the standard bearer for the last three decades, let's say, 30 some odd years in America, the most outspoken lefty we've had on television. And suddenly, because Batman called him racist, now everyone's calling him racist. And I saw basically the entire left run with that narrative and try to destroy him and try to destroy Sam. And that really was my wake-up moment because I had been thinking this for a while. As you said, I was on the Young Turks. I, I had been sitting around with a bunch of colleagues who were calling everyone racist and bigoted and homophobic all the time. And the math wasn't working out for me anymore, meaning it didn't make sense that we could be so morally right and everyone else could be such evil people like that. Just it seemed too simple, too easy. And once I realized that and then I had this A-list actor sort of, and for lack of a better word, acted out in front of me. It, it really caused a massive political shift in my mind. And, and I started talking about that quite openly and honestly. And I think that that's when my career started really picking up because a lot of people were thinking the same thing and they just didn't have the words for it. Well, right. So I had a very similar experience because, you know, actually how I started watching The Young Turks is I've always been a big fan of Bill Maher and his, um, you know, the season ended and I just typed into Google shows like Bill Maher. And it came up with the Young Turks, which at the time seemed to make sense. You know, they both just seemed to me to be sort of irreverent left-wing political talk shows, you know, kind of you know, similar. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I watched it, as I said, for a couple of years. I watched, you know, hours and hours of you on the show, obviously. And then there was, yeah, there was the, the thing with Ben Affleck. And then on the Young Turks, I tune in the next day and they're, they're just like completely going off on Sam Harris and saying that he uh, wants to launch a, a nuclear first strike. Uh, mm-hmm. and, yeah, it was a series of crazy things like that. And, um, you know, I was quite familiar with Sam Harris's work at that time. I had read, I think, both of his books that were out, and I'd watched pretty much every interview or, uh, you know, appearance that he had debate that he had done. And so I, I knew that this was just not based in reality at all. And, and so I was this to show you how naive I was at the time. I sort of sent in an email to the young Turk saying, like, guys, you know, you're, you need to fact check this because this is, this is not right, you know, mm-hmm. and just watching their, intransigence um you know over the next couple of weeks i finally i just um you know canceled my subscription and haven't watched it since um wow we are we are co-travelers my friend yeah i was working there at the time and believe me i know and they all knew about all the emails they were getting the cancellations they were getting um but you know i don't like i don't like talking about them that much but i can tell you that jank is such an ideologue he doesn't care what's true. He cares who he can destroy on his quest to prove whatever it is he believes, which I, I don't even know what that is, and I don't really waste any time thinking about them anymore. But but it was laid out very clearly to by them to to probably thousands of people that what they were doing were, was dishonest. And when they did, when Sam came in and did that three-hour interview with Jank at about – it's on YouTube, and if you watch it about minute 18 – Jenk just says he doesn't believe in probability theory. Sam's, Sam brings up something about probability theory, and Jenk just says he doesn't believe in it. And it's like, well, that's what we're dealing with. So how are we gonna how are we gonna have a thoughtful conversation? And I think probably what happened to you is similar to what happened to me, which is then it's like once you see it, you see this this actually gross uh, attack on the truth. Once you see it, then the rest of it starts crumbling very quickly. Right. I can really remember vividly, you know, I, I um, told my girlfriend I was canceling my Young Turks subscription and she said, you know, but you, you love the Young Turks. And it was they were almost like friends of mine, you know, that I, I watched them for an hour or two every day. I mean, I was really, you know, fond of the show. And I was just like, you know, I just don't feel like I 
I believe, you know, like, like this is something I know a lot about and I know how wrong what they're saying is. And there's all these, mm-hmm. these other things they talk about that I don't know a lot about. So how do I know that they're not yes. giving me wrong information about any of those other things too? Yes. I love that. I love that because that's what it takes to have your awakening. I, I always tell people, it's like, you will eventually have an original thought or, or a divergent thought. And once you have that thought, you will start looking at all the other stuff differently. And that sounds like exactly what you just laid out there, that you're going, wait, this is the topic I know a lot about. I know this guy, Sam Harris, isn't racist. I know they're lying about what he said and manipulating videos and all of this other stuff. So what does that mean about all the other stuff that's not in my wheelhouse? So I, that's that's so great hearing you say that because trust me, man, you are, you are not alone. I, I know so many people. The amount of emails that I got from people all over the world that were saying the exact same thing. So in many ways, they they did more to red pill, to take a Matrix reference, they did more to red pill more people than than we could have ever had happen on their own because sometimes the lies are the easiest way to, to wake people up once they see it. Right, but so thinking back on that, it, it's actually strange, thinking back on it now, how strange it seemed to me at the time that people would be saying things that were just completely untrue because it's become so common now. And just in the course of, you know, doing research for this podcast, I just come across all these stories where there's something that's sort of floating around in the media. And then I read a book or I, you know, talk to an expert and I find out that it's not true. And I, I just have a list of a couple of things I wanted to mention. Sure. Um, Peter Thiel wants to end women's suffrage. Uh, Palmer Lucky financed a massive troll army. And Jordan Peterson wants the government to force women to marry incels. <laughs> Um, are all just things that, I mean, I, I might well have believed those if not for the fact that I do this podcast and I spend a lot more time on this yeah, well, than a normal person. In many ways, that's the whole purpose of my book, right? The subtitle is thinking for yourself in an age of unreason. I'm not trying to convince you that every one of my political positions is correct or exactly right or what you have to believe, but I'm showing you that I have a political lens that is that is just a piece of a much wider philosophical lens that I view the world through. And these are the positions that I take from that. Um, I'll, I'll just address that last one. What was it Jordan Peterson wants? What the to marry incels? Force, force women to marry incels? I mean, really think about the absurdity <laughs> of that. Like the real absurdity of that. I, I toured with Jordan for a year and a half. I never heard the guy say anything remotely close to that. He doesn't want to force marriage on anyone. He does believe in the institution of marriage and he believes that it's, uh, he, it's good for societies to foster marriage because that fosters the family and that will help us build good institutions over generations and help humanity to flourish. Um, but I never even heard him comment on incels, actually. I've never heard him say the word incels. I'm not saying he hasn't said it, but a lot of people would say, oh, all of the people who show up to Jordan Peterson shows are, are, uh, angry young men. And now, first off, that wasn't true. It was usually about 60, 40 male to female, but they were ages all over the board and they were gay people and straight people and black people and white people and everything else. But I would always think it was such an odd criticism anyway, because let's say it was all angry young men. And if Jordan was giving them a message of positivity, of get your life in order, clean your room, stand up straight with your shoulders back and helping them get their lives in order, well, then wouldn't it be good to be talking to a group of angry young men if you're making them less angry? But the media, I mean, I think what belies your your wider point is that this is what the media does. You know, the Young Turks were the first sort of in on the YouTube game and media, and they became basically click whores, and they taught us all of the bad practices, which my channel doesn't use anymore. But, you know, they just wanted clicks, so you just write crazy things about whoever's popular. They they do it about me now. It's like, you know, it is what it is. 
I mean, speaking of all the kind of angry young men thing, um, you had a video recently about the the Todd Phillips movie Joker, which was, mm -hmm. as far as I can remember, the first time you've dedicated a video to like one commenting on a single movie, yeah, um, in a long, long time. And I was just wondering, kind of, what uh, prompted you to to devote that kind of um, focus to that particular movie. Yeah, you know, I don't do that kind of stuff on my channel too much. I obviously mostly do interviews and then I do live streams where I'm talking about politics and answering questions and things like that. But I really felt that there was something really important about the movie Joker. It, well, first off, it felt like a piece of art to me, which, you know, I, I like all the superhero movies. I, I really enjoy all of them uh, for the most part, you know, um, there's a couple exceptions, but I think most of them are, are pretty good. Uh, especially the Marvel ones. Actually, the DC ones, I think, have been pretty bad almost across the board. Um, but the Marvel ones have been quite good. And, and when I say DC, I'm not including the, the original Batman trilogy, which was spectacular. Um, but I thought it was a piece of art. It, it, it felt like a real film, like a throwback to something else that wasn't animatronic and wasn't computer generated and had a real story and really was about pain and didn't pull any punches. And, you know, at the end of the movie, I tweeted something about how, you know, I saw all of the lefties were rejoicing over the movie because at the end, it seems like the Joker's winning and, you know, chaos is going to ensue and it's sort of like Antifa is taking over. And I tweeted something about that because it was like, wow, you guys really do have the world totally backwards because you think the Joker is a good guy. And that's not to say the Joker didn't have it rough and the world wasn't rough to him and all of those things that happened to him in the movie. But the Joker's a bad guy. Burning the world and, and rejoicing in the burning of the world, that is the bad guys. But I saw so many people on the left saying, what, this is like vindication of their worldview. And it's like, no, only if you think the bad guys are the good guys. That's not to say that there aren't forces that, that help make people bad, right? That isn't to say that the Joker wasn't wronged by people or didn't have reasons to be aggrieved. But if you're going to end up murdering people and burning the whole country or the city down, Gotham down, well, then you're, you're definitely not the good guy. So I felt it had something to say. And that's what I mean about, you know, sort of good art, good sci-fi. Like what is a really good science fiction movie do it makes you think about what the future could be like and although joker wasn't sci-fi in and of itself it makes you think about what what could bad forces actually do and i think it painted it in a pretty pretty honest stark pretty painful way you were also talking though in that video about how so many people in the media were sort of panicking that the movie would inspire real oh, yeah. violence which seems sort of fantastical well, it's, it, because that just feeds their narrative that somehow, well, that was what really my, my tweet was also belying, which is that like, you know, the idea is, oh, they're P Trump supporters is what they were trying to say. Trump supporters are angry young men and they're going to watch this movie and then they're going to burn down the city. And it's like, no, it was, it was aimed at the Antifa guys who, again, they're the bad guys in the movie. So the movie did do something really clever. Um, but you know, this is what the media does with everything, any, you know, anything interesting. If you're interesting and you actually say something, the media tries to figure out how to destroy you. So they were trying to scare people from seeing the movie. I mean, that, that in effect was it. And of course there was no violence related to it. And by the way, had there been violence, it wouldn't, you can't blame it on the movie because art is art. That would be like saying we can't have books. We can't have movies about anything. You could watch literally any movie and copy something that had it. It happened in it. Virtually every movie has some level of violence. The idea that this movie was going to instigate people. I mean, it's all, you know, now that it's a year later or whatever it is, it's like, wow, what, what stupidity that people <laughs> were writing these quote unquote think pieces.
Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, and you talk a lot in the book about issues with the left-wing media, which I, I mean, I have a lot of sympathy for that. I have a lot of frustrations with the left-wing media. You don't really talk about the right-wing media. I'm not sure how exactly you feel about them. I mean, I have not had great experiences with the right-wing media either. Uh, well, well, it, it depends what you mean by right-wing media. So the reason I attack the media, so usually I, I attack the media separately than, than I don't, I don't say left-wing media. I say the media because the media is mostly left. So meaning that if you look at everything mainstream, ABC, NBC, CBS, uh, you, you know, CNN, MSNBC, um, you look Politico, um, the Atlantic, like virtually everything is left at this point. And the counter to that pretty much in terms of mainstream is Fox News. Now, Fox lets me on all the time. I go on pretty much every show on the network. I, they never ask me a question beforehand. I can say whatever I want. I disagree with the hosts all the time. Tucker and I disagree about regulating big tech. That's a huge uh, a huge issue. All the hosts know that I'm pro-choice. That's a big no-no for conservatives. And they let me do my thing. Now, that's not to say Fox is perfect. They are what they are. That's fine. But when I attack the media, what I'm really attacking is that there is this New York Times, CNN based lefty media that they think they know how the whole world should operate. And if you think differently, they're there to destroy you. So when you say right-wing media, I'd want to know a little bit more about what you mean by that, because if you mean like just random right-wing websites, then you're probably right that there's probably some really awful ones. But I, what would you say includes right-wing media besides Fox, per se? Well, well, well let me tell you about this, ex this experience I had. So, And you might have yeah. heard about this. It kind of became a thing. But so, so I interviewed an author named Andy Duncan, and he had written a short story called Senator Bilbo. And it's a parody of Lord of the Rings where um, there's a sort of an old – um, prejudiced hobbit who's prejudiced against orcs and he's resisting the facts that orcs are being integrated into the Shire. And it's a, it's a really good story. I think it's really funny. And uh, so I interviewed him about it and um, it just like blew up on, on all <laughs> these right wing websites. I mean uh, the one, I mean, it was like uh national review uh, going back uh, mm -hmm. Uh, RT, I, there's a whole list, but the, the ones that I, I'll particularly mention are the Daily Mail, Daily Wire, and the Times of London, mm -hmm. because they all had um, headlines that contained quotes in quotation marks that were just invented quotes, you know, that he hadn't said or and I hadn't said. Mm -hmm. And um, so that's why I kind of feel like there's this sort of outrage and clickbait and, um, you know, laziness on both sides where, uh, you know, the the, the two... I don't know, media ecosystems. I mean, I realize the left is a lot bigger and more influential, but they sort of seem to be mirroring each other and mirroring the worst aspects of each other. Yeah, that that's it. So I didn't hear about that specifically, and I'll totally Google that after this. And that's that's really interesting and, and disheartening to hear from some of my, you know, friends, let's say at the Blaze or, or Daily Wire. So I can't comment on the on the specifics of it. Um, but believe me, I'm not here sitting, oh, like the right is so perfect and the left is so evil. I am not doing that at all. What I have found that broadly speaking, the right is much more open to divergent views and agreeing to disagree and live and let live where the left isn't. But I think what you said before that actually is the broader point, which is that so much of mainstream is left that when I attack the media, that's what I'm attacking because that's the bigger beast rather than attacking like, could I just, you know, do what CNN does all day long, which is, you know, like these guys like Oliver Darcy, their media correspondent who like sits there and watches Fox all day long waiting for somebody to say something uh, or Media Matters who watches Fox all day long so they can find me, you know, pausing in an instance they don't like and they think that that means that I meant something else. It's like, yeah, I suppose I could do that. But 
the 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 balance isn't quite balanced out. So that that's why I don't focus that much on the right. Um, but I'll totally check out what you're talking about, and and that's not to say that it doesn't exist. Yeah. All right. So now we can get to Star Wars. I know you've really been <laughs> okay for that. Um, actually, it's funny because you talk in the book about how um, difficult it, it was coming out of the closet, you know, telling people that you were a gay man and then how difficult it was coming out of the political closet, telling people that you, uh, you know, were developing more libertarian um, political philosophy. Uh, I feel a little bit like that because I'm going to come out of the closet here as a uh, that I kind of liked The Last Jedi. So uh, I don't know. This could get ugly, I guess. But, um, All right. Here we go. Here we go. Well, so let me tell you how I felt because um, and I, cause I was really disappointed with The Force Awakens because I waited my I felt like I waited my whole life to see what mm-hmm. happened after Return of the Jedi. Mm-hmm. And it felt like The Force Awakens wasn't that, that it was kind of a soft reboot of the whole Star Wars universe. And it didn't feel like, you know, there wasn't the New Republic. There wasn't, you know, it just felt sort of disconnected from everything that had come before. And so let's let's pause there and, and do each one. So I because I I've heard a lot of that. So it's, what I find is that people that didn't like Force Awakens did like Last Jedi, and and I'm the reverse of that. So we're we're on opposite sides of this. Right. So wait, let, let let's just do it for a second here. So what I found for Force Awakens was that the reason that I loved it, and I and as I said before, I like it less and less each time I watch it now because I thought the other two were were basically such a mess. What I liked about it was you got to remember that in the context of how it came out with Disney rebooting the entire thing, all of the negative press about the prequels, which as I'm saying, I, I think actually were pretty good and we'll keep looking at more fondly over the years, um, they had such a huge lift to fix the franchise that J.J., look, did he take the biggest risks? Of course not, because it, in essence, he just rebooted the a New Hope story. It's almost the exact same story. So could he have taken more risks? Sure. Is it silly that Starkiller Base is just a bigger Death Star? Yeah. And then you know what? In, in Rise of the Skywalker, now, now ships can do the Death Star thing. So they just kept making things bigger and bigger, which in and of itself doesn't make things good. That's what Zack Snyder does with all his monsters. They just have bigger explosions and it's like, no, we've seen, we've seen explosions already. Um, but I thought Force Awakens, it had to reset things. It had to connect the old to the new. It had to feel unique and all of those things. And I felt it did all of that. And then coupled with the fact that that last scene, when she walks up to Luke, it's so freaking powerful. Like you said, you were waiting your whole adulthood for this. Like I felt when they, when that movie ended, I was like, Oh man, I am back in. Like they fully got me. So I was willing to overlook some of that stuff, but I, I fully get, and I'd be happy to hear more about it. I get the position of, Oh, they just reset it. They didn't, or they just rebooted it, not reset it or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So that's basically, I mean, Force Awakens to me felt like sort of a movie written by committee. Um, that was just sort of a corporate product. Uh, and it was not at all what I wanted out of Star Wars. So I went into, um, Last Jedi with pretty low expectations. And I felt like it was really surprising. And, and, you know, that the director, you know, it felt like there was one person who had a vision. And I understand people not liking it because one description of the movie I heard one time is, is, it's like watching someone take out all your, uh, Star Wars toys you played with when you were a kid and just break <laughs> them in front of you. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I totally get that. But just for me, I just thought it was, and especially like, you know, and then I felt like they just went back to the sort of written by committee for um, the rise of Skywalker. But I felt like um, I could have told you going into the rise of Skywalker, I feel like I could have told you the whole story without even having seen the movie. And the last Jedi was surprising. Uh, and it took a lot of risks. 
and See, that kind of endeared it to me. That That's really interesting. So first off, I like what you said about expectations because my expectations for Last Jedi were through the roof because I loved Force Awakens. So we had a totally reverse experience, which is actually very cool as two people who love Star Wars and we're just looking at it from different perspectives. So that's number one. In, in terms of taking risks, the reason I think they dropped the ball, well, first off, that opening scene with Snoke and the phone call, uh, uh, with um, General Hux and the phone call is just patently stupid. But But putting that aside... The moment that the movie could have been incredible, they completely dropped the ball. And, and Rise of Skywalker did this about five times. That moment in the after Snoke is killed, and they have that awesome scene in the in the red room, yeah. Um, and they're fighting on the same side. When they when they shake hands or they're putting their hands out, you suddenly feel like, holy cow, Star Wars is about to become something completely else. The the dark and the light are about to become come together. Like like it actually felt like they were going to do something risky and dangerous, and really something that had never been done before, other for that brief second when Darth Vader throws Palpatine over the edge, you know, to save Luke, but that that Rey and Kylo were going to be teammates. Like, that would have been a, a risky, bold move, but what do they do? They immediately, uh, she knocks him out, and she leaves. And it's like, then in Rise of Skywalker, or I'll, I'll hold the Rise of Skywalker stuff, but I thought that that sort of stuff where they give you an emotional moment where you're like, holy cow, they're going to do something amazing. And then they just take it away from you right then and there. And then the other thing that I hated was if Luke's going to die at the end, well, then why have him force projectile there as a, as a force ghost? Let the guy get on the freaking X-Wing and let him show up and, and let Kylo kill him. And then it's a sort of a Obi-Wan ending instead of just meditating and, and then disappearing. I just, that just felt cheap and weak to me because then when you see him, the moment before that, when you see him seeing uh, Leia, it's like he's not even there. Uh, I totally agree with you about that Kylo and Rey should have teamed up or that that would have been cool. And I think you see in all the trailers, they kind of tease that, you know, because somebody marketing the movie knows that that would be more interesting. So I, I totally agree with that. I, I loved the the confrontation um, between um, Kylo Ren and, and Luke at the end of The Last Jedi. But why um, not just have him there? Why not just have him show up and do it in person? If he's trying to stall, right? The whole point is he's trying to stall so they can escape. Why not just get him there? Uh, I, you know, I only saw the movie once. I think he had already given away his X-Wing. I don't know. That no, 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 the, no, the X-Wing's there. It's on, uh, Akchu or whatever that planet think, is that you see, I think you see it in the water. I, I just, I'll say, I loved the, um, just the dialogue, the, like, everything you just said is wrong, see around kid stuff. Mm -hmm. And then also, you know, when we were watching the movie, my girlfriend was kind of elbowing me during the lightsaber fight. And she's like, his boots aren't making any marks on the ground. And I was like, what? What are you talking about? You're crazy, you know? And then, you know, and then she's like, yeah, I was right. I was right. And so there was this kind of like, oh, that's pretty clever. And, and my girlfriend saw that. And um, I don't know. It just made it kind of like a fun moment for me too. Right, right. Yeah, look, this is different strokes, right? Like, you know, it's like we can love these things and love the lore and all of that stuff and, and just have different feelings about some of the execution. Yeah, but I mean, I do feel like, like I mean, I liked the movie. I mean, I get that people, like, it wasn't what, everyone wanted out of a Star Wars movie, but I do feel like the um, response online was really over-the-top negative, and I guess I'm just curious, as someone who, who really intensely disliked the movie, do you feel that the uh, response was overly negative or, or not? Um, well, I think it was overly negative because, you know, from, from my perspective, it, it deserved to be overly critiqued. I think it was also the audience trying to keep these people honest in a way. Um, and you know, Ryan Johnson, it seems like Ryan Johnson 
I, I got the feeling that he didn't like Star Wars, basically. Like when he does that whole thing about Luke, you know, Luke is so bitter that, that toss of the lightsaber. It's like Force Awakens ends with that great scene that I just referenced. You see him hold the lightsaber. You're, you're, you're getting electricity up your spine. And next thing you know, they open up the other movie with that idiotic phone call with Hux and then Luke's throwing the light, lightsaber and we're like, oh no, what's happening here? So as far as the, the criticism, I mean, that's what people do. You know, that's what the fandom, uh, the fandom does. And uh, it just sort of, uh, it just sort of is, I think. I guess, I mean, I feel like, you know, when I talk to actual people about the movie, there's a range of, about pretty much any movie, there's a range of opinion where some people liked it and some people didn't like it and some people thought it was okay and, and so on. But if I go on YouTube, it's just page after page after page <laughs> of like, this is the worst movie ever, it ruined my life, it ruined Star Wars, like, nothing will <laughs> but ever that, be okay again. Yeah, you know, that also tells you about the beauty of Star Wars, like it made people feel all of these things, you know, and that that's interesting. But wait, so what do you think about Rise of Skywalker? Because I think maybe we can get to some agreement on this, perhaps. No, 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 I hated it. You hated it? See, that's yeah. so interesting. So when I saw it the first time in the theater, I saw it opening night, first showing, I could not enjoy it because the entire time I kept thinking it was going to derail. So I just like, I felt like I was like clutching my seat the whole time, like, oh God, at any moment, this thing's going to go just be terrible. And it never, it never became terrible in my view, but it did do some really terrible things that I think that ultimately destroyed the entire trilogy, including Force Awakens, which is every time you have an emotional moment. So this is what I'm referring to with, with, uh, Ray and Kylo in the last one. Every time you have an emotional moment, they take it away from you. So think about it. You think Chewie dies, right? You think he dies in that crash that she causes the crash by using force lightning. What a powerful moment. You kill Chewie, who everyone loves, and it was done by Rey, and it's the first time you've seen her use force lightning. That That's a powerful thing. Well, then what do they do two minutes later? Oh, you find out he's alive. C-3PO, with the memory loss, it's like that's the killing of C-3PO. That's pretty powerful. What do they do to five minutes later? He's getting some of his memory back. And I think they did just a whole bunch of those that it's like, yeah, it makes the movie work. You know, a good movie, when you watch a good movie, when I, when I referenced Contact before, if you watch Contact a couple times, you will get something more from it each time. You'll go, whoa, now that, that look that he gave him there, or I understand what he's really saying there differently, or this or that. But what a bad movie does is it makes it worse each time you watch it. And and when I watched Rise of Skywalker the second time, I had no expectations anymore. But in many ways, I liked it less because I was like, oh, well, every time, you know, now you watch the Chewie thing and you know what's going to happen and there's no meaningful emotion attached to it. So I didn't think it was a terrible movie altogether. I thought it was better than Last Jedi, but I thought they, you know. They're not doing anything honest here. He's just trying to clean up the mess. That is what uh, what J Ryan Johnson left him. Right, but the, see, I, I liked a lot of the stuff in the Last Jedi, like because especially I think because I read so much fantasy and science fiction, I'm so over the like who's this person's parents. Like, mm -hmm, I mean, it's, it's mm -hmm. in every fantasy series. And so when um, in Last Jedi, when when they're like, "No, you're nobody," you know, I was like, "Oh, that's not." I was not expecting that. That's kind of cool. Um, and then, uh, what was right. And then they take it away. Well, then they take it away in last Jedi. Yeah. And then I, uh, sorry, you, in uh Skywalker. Yeah. 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 You can, I mean, you can go and listen to my review of last Jedi. I'm like, I know what's going to happen next movie is that JJ Abrams is going to come in and it's going to turn out that Ray is like Palpatine's niece's cousin or something. And it's just going to like, you know, um, so there was that, and there was this whole thing in the last Jedi about how, cause one of the sort of issues with star Wars 
as it's developed has been that it's sort of a little like weird that the force is like the uh the special purview of a kind of force sensitive bloodline aristocracy mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it seems like the, you know ryan johnson was trying to take it in this direction like no the the force isn't just the skywalker family it's something that you know is can be for everyone it's sort of democratizing it somehow and then that was just completely dropped you know it never came up at all in um, yeah the rise of skywalker well, that's what I mean about they didn't plot this thing out. Like, how did Kathleen Kennedy at Disney not sit down? And even if, you know, they switched the director on the third one. I, do you remember who it was? He was going to be the looper guy, I right? It was Colin Trevorrow. Right, right. He was the guy that did Jurassic World, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like, how would you have not sat down with the three directors and said, listen, you can direct the movie however you want. You can add your style to it. You know, J.J. obviously has a very specific style. And he, he really had a couple nods to the originals, um, with, with, you know, flashes and things like that, or screen wipes, whatever you want to call them. Um, but you, you could say to them, Hey, you guys can do whatever you want, but the basic bones of the trilogy are this. This is the stuff that you sort of got to get to one way or another. So you have a cohesive thing, but it sounds like they never did that. And then, and then I think what Kathleen Kennedy thought, it's sort of the reverse of what you're saying. She, I think she heard from the fans and the fans were like, man, last Jedi sucked. And now, J.J., you just got to clean it up. I, I, I mean, J.J. will never touch Star Wars again because there's almost no win in it for him. And and you can, in many ways, you can feel a certain, like, there's a certain death of Star Wars right now. You know, a lot of the other things that they've done have not worked. Um, you know, Clone Wars, the, the Cartoon Network thing, I actually haven't watched the last season yet. But the fact that I haven't sort of tells you, like, because I did watch the whole other thing, but it sort of tells you I'm just, like, kind of exhausted by the stories. I'm kind of curious to see what happens to um, Ahsoka, um, but like, you know, it's sort of just like I'm, I'm just sort of beat with these things. And even Mandalorian, like I, I liked Mandalorian, but like I didn't think it was great. Like, did, did you watch Mandalorian? I actually, I actually liked it a lot. Uh, yeah, it, sort of, I, it was sort of like fun. It, it, it really captured the tone of A New Hope, I thought, and it was just enjoyable and unpretentious. And yeah, I, I watched it with my dad. You know, it was it was just like that kind of show. Yeah, yeah, I t- I liked it. I totally liked it, but I didn't I didn't love it. And I think part of that is just that I think Star Wars like just desperately needs the Force. So like that little moment with Baby Yoda is kind of cool. But then like they do like little odd things, like the last scene in the last episode of Mandalorian with the with the guy I don't remember his name, but the 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 guy in the Tie Fighter that's obviously going to be the main oh, bad yeah. guy. Moff's, um, uh, whatever his name is, it's like why why isn't he in a mask? Why doesn't he look cool? Why is Gideon, it just a Moff, guy? Is it Moff, Moff Gideon? I think Mo- is, is that what it is? But it's like what put the guy in a mask or make him <laughs> a creature or something. Instead, it's just a guy, a guy in an outfit, and it's like okay, a guy, the bad the bad guy's a guy in an outfit. Like give us some freaking Star Wars here, you know? Give me Jabba the Hutt and a freaking Tie Fighter or, or or whatever it is. But I feel like they it, it was just like lazy story writing. Like why why is he just a guy in a, a suit? You know. Well, yeah, and I, I know that, I know that's a little nitpicky. No, no, and I, I agree with what you're saying. That I mean, it clearly, in retrospect, it was a mistake to have one movie directed by J.J. Abrams and another movie directed by Ryan Johnson, who have such completely, you know, conflicting aesthetics. And uh, you know that it would have, I think, it would have been better to pick one or the other to to do all three movies. Uh, it probably would have worked out a lot better. But yeah, you say like J.J. Abrams isn't going to touch Star Wars now, and it seems like Ryan Johnson's probably not either, or, um, you know, Benioff and Weiss. And it seems like, you know, there's just been so much drama around Star Wars that it's driving away talent. And I've heard the same thing with even the tie-in novels that a lot of authors are telling editors, like, I don't want to write a Star Wars novel. I don't want to deal with all this 
the politics. Basically. Yeah. Right. Well, it, it becomes one of those things where it's almost like, you know, we didn't have a host at the Oscars last year, and I suspect we won't even have an Oscars this year. It's like nobody wants to deal with the headache. But, you know, you can also, I'm sure you've watched them. There's some pretty cool fan stuff that they've done on YouTube. You know, the the uh, Obi-Wan thing that they did on YouTube, and there's a Kylo Ren one, and a couple others. And it's like the fans do really care about these things. And, you know, they they don't have all of the tech and all of the money and the big budgets to pull it off perfectly. But maybe handing some of these to some really unknowns, uh, because the giant corporations, I don't know that they can handle the stories anymore. It's sort of like, you know, by the end, by the time, uh, Endgame ended, the, the last Avengers movie, it was like, I wanted to barf, sort of. Not because it was bad, but it was like enough, <laughs> enough of the same old stuff. And anyone that dies can come back and time travel and all of these things. So you can, it's sort of what you referenced earlier. You can always just like erase whatever happened in the previous movie. And, and that, that, that takes away reality. You need a certain degree of reality to have good science fiction, I think. So speaking of the, the powerful corporations, I watched your interview with Benny Johnson. The title was something like winning the culture war through Star Wars memes, which kind of, you know, caught my attention. But one thing you said in there, you said, you're talking about The Last Jedi, and you said, it's the media then attacking the fan base. I don't know. Is it at the behest of the studio, or is it just because the whole machine kind of works like that? And I was just wondering, like, what do you mean by at the behest of the studio? And do you feel like any people in the media are kind of, I don't know, have like weird um, conflicts of interest or something or connections with the movie studios? Yeah, yeah. So you're asking me sort of like a what is Gamergate question at some level or something like that. I mean, look, I don't know if it's at the behest of studios or certain writers want to be liked by studios. So they write good reviews for movies that they know are bad so that they can keep a job at Variety or Hollywood Reporter or something like that. Like, I have no doubt that some of that exists. Um, but it is odd that one of the things that we see all the time lately is when you bring out a movie like, let's say, the, the you know, the Ghostbusters reboot with the women – um, you know, I remember everybody was going crazy on it before it even came out and then it flopped and I didn't see it in the theater, but I saw it, you know, I rented it one night and it's pretty freaking horrible. It's not funny. It's not interesting. It's, it's pandering and just nothing. That has nothing to do with it being all women. It has something to do with bad writing and maybe some of the actors weren't great in it or whatever. Um, but it's like the media wrote what a, like there were so many stories on what an incredible movie it was and it's a feminism and powerful and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, no, the movie sucked. Why can't you guys just be honest with us and be like, yes, it was a movie with all women. And, and they keep doing this in different degrees. You know, they rebooted Ocean's Eleven with all women. It's like, we don't need movies that are all men or all women. I, I'm, I'm a firm believer that men and women can be in movies together. So we do these, these odd things where then the media feels it must defend these movies because it's women. Um, when in fact the fans that are supposed to be going there don't like it, or in some cases, maybe the fans are mostly men and, and maybe mostly men want to see more male ghostbusters. Who the hell knows? But if the movie had been good, it would not have gotten the attack that it got. And yeah, that goes I, for the, that goes for the star Wars one as well. Well, and I, I agree that the, the ghostbusters I, I thought was pretty mediocre, but I, I feel like that I'm able to watch these movies and, you know, like I liked Joker and I liked The Last Jedi and I disliked the Ghostbusters movie, you know, like um, so many of these things I feel like, especially on YouTube, like I feel like I know what the people are going to say about this movie before they even see it mm -hmm. just based mm -hmm. on its perceived side in the culture war. And I think that's yeah. really sad or it's, it's really it, too bad. 
it, it is unfortunate that so much of just like your ability to just see something for face value and not hear so much about it first and all that is, is tough. I mean, even just trying to avoid spoilers and avoid stories and the hit pieces and all that stuff. It's like work now to avoid all of that stuff before you go to see something that hopefully you're going to enjoy. Uh, all right. So we've just got about 10 minutes left. I have a couple more things I was going to ask. Um this is just sort of random, but uh, I watched one of your interviews with Michael Malice, and he's dressed in a white suit. And you said, oh, you're looking like Leisure Suit Larry. And yeah. I was just wondering if you – did you play Leisure Suit Larry or any of those uh, Sierra Yeah, I, I used to play Leisure Suit Larry on my Gateway 2000 386 SX something, one gigabyte – or one <laughs> gigabyte, one megabyte or something. You know, bought it on the three and a half uh, hard they, – they were floppy disks, but they were the hard ones. Yeah. Uh, way back when I used to play those, I used to play, um, uh, Escape from Monkey Island, which I really loved because it was fun and you know, I, La- Leisure Suit Larry and Escape from Monkey Island. Were, were those both the same creators? I think they, I think no, maybe they no, were. Um, one was Sierra and one was LucasArts. Uh, well, uh, uh, Monkey Island was LucasArts. Is yeah, that right? Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, they were just sort of like fun. They had a good sense of humor, you know, didn't take themselves too seriously. And then I liked other ones like, uh, was it King's Quest? Yeah, yeah. Do you remember that? I loved, loved, loved King's Quest. The way it would make you think and the puzzles and all of that stuff. Um, so yeah, I, I really loved that. And of course, Leisure Suit Larry, you know, when you're, when you're a kid and there's like something sort of sexual in it, it's like whatever <laughs> the hell it is, it seems like something, you know? Yeah. Were you able to, cause they had this quiz at the beginning of the game to make sure that you weren't a kid yeah. where they'd ask oh, yeah. questions only an adult would know. Well, they would add, they would do that also because they wanted you to look in the manuals to make sure that you actually bought the game and you didn't just copy the discs. Yeah. Are you still into video games? In the uh, acknowledgments, you say to sip and Ari for being my video game slash sports slash intellectual sparring partners. Yeah. Those guys are really sip. I met when we were in, if I remember meeting him, uh, first day of kindergarten about 40 years ago almost. And Ari moved to my town when we were in third grade and we've been doing all this stuff forever. Um, you know, I don't really have time anymore, unfortunately, to, to really do anything, but I do have my old school Nintendo, childhood Nintendo, which I cleaned and fixed myself, so I don't even have to blow in it. They still work. And uh, usually if I have a little time, I, I'm, Contra is always my go-to for just like mindless fun, and I try to see how many lives I can beat it in without having to go for the full 30, up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, BA, <laughs> select, start, um, and, uh, you know, Mario and some of the other ones. I've got an old Sega Genesis here. I do have a PlayStation 4, which the only thing that I'm playing right now in quarantine, I'm playing with my nine-year-old nephew and my his dad, my brother-in-law. Uh, we play Gauntlet um, Slayer Edition, which just it's just kind of mindless. You know, you're just running around and slashing stuff and doing that together. But unfortunately, I just don't have enough time to really dive back into that world. So, you know, I, I do this podcast and I watch the Ruben Report and I'm like, wow, that looks really so much better than my podcast. Maybe someday I could turn my garage into a studio. <laughs> Make it happen, man. What are the um, like, what would what would be some advice you would have for like, I don't know, how many people and how much equipment and stuff do you need to transform your garage into a studio like like the Ruben Report? Yeah, well, I would say you got to. You know, there, there's so many things. I built this four years ago and we are, we are still even now pretty freaking cutting edge and we're way ahead of the game on, you know, you're watching all these CNN anchors and everybody else doing stuff from home. And we have a legit TV studio here. So I'm doing all my Fox appearances from here and virtually everything else that I do. I would say most importantly, don't cut corners. You know, like you're going to have to spend a little bit more to get the right lights, spend a little bit more to get the good cameras, spend a little bit more 
uh, on the, the right backup equipment and all of those things because it will be worth it in the end. You know, when, when lockdown began and everybody started freaking out, I was like, look, if the internet works, we're going to be okay. And, and by the way, our internet then got really slow here in LA and we had a satellite put in our roof. So we have, you know, direct, direct connection internet that's not shared with anyone. So I think just trying to be as ahead of the game as you can be is probably the best advice. Even yeah, though it feels, it feels a little amorphous, I suppose, but just try to see which way the winds are blowing and, and go with them sometimes. And before anyone gets too excited, I don't even have a garage at this point. So we're, <laughs> Get a garage first. Small <laughs> steps, small steps. Um, see, I heard you say that you're um, in one of these videos that you're trying to move a little bit away from politics and a little bit more toward culture. And I was wondering if you think you might ever start interviewing more science fiction authors or filmmakers on Ruben Report. I would love to. If you've got a list of interesting people, I, I'd love to talk to some more. You know, I had on the filmmaker side, um, I've, I've had a couple interesting people on, um, oh man, I'm blanking on his name right now. The, uh, the guy who did American, uh, American Psycho. I can't believe I'm blanking on his name. He's a friend of mine. I've been, uh, so, I've been doing uh, so many interviews lately. Um, who did, oh, well, the book was Brett oh, Easton Brett, Ellis. Brett Easton, Brett Easton Ellis. Yeah. Thank you. Sorry. <laughs> man, it's a lot of interviews lately. Um, and I like talking about, I, you know, because I like talking about, I like talking about how people learn their craft and what makes them tick the way they do, but also like, you know, especially if you put out something that feels like something powerful. So like American Psycho really felt like they were, they, he was really saying something about culture and finance and capitalism and all sorts of stuff. Um, if you can create something right and, and, and or direct or produce whatever it is, something that feels like something, it's like that, that's what makes the world go by. That's what makes the engine go. That's what captures our imagination. And, and I think that's, Totally cool. So yeah, I'm, I'm completely down to shift a little way. You know, unfortunately everything's, everything's become political. So I'm not as enamored with politics as I used to be. Yeah. Well, I think that's a really good note to end on. Dave, do you have any just uh, final thoughts or anything else you wanted to let people know about? Uh, well, this was a thoroughly enjoyable interview, very different than, uh, than most of the ones that I've done. But I, I really love this concept that, you know, we could both have our imaginations captured as kids by, by a story, in this case, Star Wars. And then view the incarnations of it just very differently. It, it says something about the uniqueness of, of individual people. And it's like when you explain to me why you liked Last Jedi and the things that it flipped that you wanted flipped and, and that you felt what you felt about Force Awakens because of the retread and yet I liked it for the exact same reason. I, that really is – it's sort of why I like interviewing people because when you find someone that you think is a decent human being and you go, whoa, you just view something really differently than I do – um, that's a very cool place as long as you're both not killing each other. So uh, next time we can try this with lightsabers and see what happens. Yeah, absolutely. And I can definitely send you some uh, suggestions for science fiction people you might want to talk to. I've interviewed, you know, four or 500 of them. So I definitely have. Yeah. Some that, <laughs> so you might have a couple. All right. Yeah, that would be great. I'd be happy to hear it. All right. Great. So we've been speaking with Dave Rubin about his new book. Don't burn this book. So, Dave, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks. Really enjoyed it. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Dave Rubin for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. 
The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.